Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 2 on the Man Called Christ Chapter 2 The Riddles of the Gospel Part 3 The same truth might be stated in another way by saying that if the story be regarded as merely human and historical, it is extraordinary how very little there is in the recorded words of Christ that ties him at all to his own time. I do not mean the details of a period, which even a man of the period knows to be passing. I mean the fundamentals which even the wisest man often vaguely assumes to be eternal. For instance, Aristotle was perhaps the wisest and most wide-minded man who ever lived. He founded himself entirely upon fundamentals, which have been generally found to remain rational and solid through all social and historical changes. Still, he lived in a world in which it was thought as natural to have slaves as to have children and therefore he did permit himself a serious recognition of a difference between slaves and free men. Christ, as much as Aristotle, lived in a world that took slavery for granted. He did not particularly denounce slavery. He started a movement that could exist in a world with slavery. But he started a movement that could exist in a world without slavery. He never used a phrase that made his philosophy depend even upon the very existence of the social order in which he lived. He spoke as one conscious that everything was ephemeral, including the things that Aristotle thought eternal. By that time, the Roman Empire had come to be merely the Orbis Terrarum, another name for the world. But he never made his morality dependent on the existence of the Roman Empire, or even on the existence of the world. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The truth is that when critics have spoken of the local limitations of the Galilean, it has always been a case of the local limitations of the critics. He did undoubtedly believe in certain things that one particular modern sect of materialists do not believe but they were not things particularly peculiar to his time. It would be nearer the truth to say that the denial of them is quite peculiar to our time. Doubtless, it would be nearer still to the truth to say that a certain solemn social importance in the minority disbelieving them is peculiar to our time. He believed, for instance, in evil spirits or in the psychic healing of bodily ills, but not because he was a Galilean born under Augustus. It is absurd to say that a man believed things because he was a Galilean under Augustus when he might have believed the same things if he had been an Egyptian under Tutankhamun, or an Indian under Genghis Khan. But with this general question of the philosophy of diabolism, or of divine miracles, I deal elsewhere. It is enough to say that the materialists have to prove the impossibility of miracles against the testimony of all mankind, 
not against the prejudices of provincials in North Palestine under the first Roman emperors. What they have to prove, for the present argument, is the presence in the Gospels of those particular prejudices of those particular provincials. And, humanly speaking, it is astonishing how little they can produce even to make a beginning of proving it. So it is in this case of the sacrament of marriage. We may not believe in sacraments, as we may not believe in spirits. But it is quite clear that Christ believed in this sacrament in his own way, and not in any current or contemporary way. He certainly did not get his argument against divorce from the Mosaic law, or the Roman law, or the habits of the Palestinian people. It would appear to his critics then exactly what it appears to his critics now, an arbitrary and transcendental dogma coming from nowhere save in the sense that it came from him. I am not at all concerned here to defend that dogma. The point here is that it is just as easy to defend it now as it was to defend it then. It is an ideal altogether outside time. Difficult at any period. Impossible at no period. In other words, if anyone says it is what might be expected of a man walking about in that place at that period, we can quite fairly answer that it is much more like what might be the mysterious utterance of a being beyond man if he walked alive among men. I maintain, therefore, that a man reading the New Testament frankly and freshly would not get the impression of what is now often meant by a human Christ. The merely human Christ is a made-up figure, a piece of artificial selection like the merely evolutionary man. Moreover, there have been too many of these human Christs found in the same story, just as there have been too many keys to mythology found in the same stories. Three or four separate schools of rationalism have worked over the ground and produced three or four equally rational explanations of his life. The first rational explanation of his life was that he never lived, and this in turn gave an opportunity for three or four different explanations, as that he was a sun myth, or a corn myth, or any other kind of myth that is also a monomania. Then the idea that he was a divine being who did not exist gave place to the idea that he was a human being who did exist. In my youth, it was the fashion to say that he was merely an ethical teacher in the manner of the Essenes, who had apparently nothing very much to say that Hillel or a hundred other Jews might not have said, as that it is a kindly thing to be kind, and an assistance to purification to be pure. Then somebody said he was a madman with a messianic delusion. Then others said he was indeed an original teacher because he cared about nothing but socialism. Or, as others said, about nothing but pacifism. Then a more grimly scientific character appeared, who said that Jesus would never have been heard of at all except for his prophecies of the end of the world. He was important merely as a millenarian like Dr. Cumming, 
and created a provincial scare by announcing the exact date of the crack of doom. Among other variants on the same theme was the theory that he was a spiritual healer and nothing else, a view implied by Christian science, which has really to expound a Christianity without the crucifixion in order to explain the curing of Peter's wife's mother or the daughter of a centurion. There is another theory that concentrates entirely on the business of diabolism and what it would call the contemporary superstition about demoniacs, as if Christ, like a young deacon taking his first orders, had got as far as exorcism and never got any further. Now, each of these explanations in itself seems to me singularly inadequate. But taken together, they do suggest something of the very mystery which they miss. There must surely have been something not only mysterious, but many-sided about Christ, if so many smaller Christs can be carved out of him. If the Christian scientist is satisfied with him as a spiritual healer, and the Christian socialist is satisfied with him as a social reformer, so satisfied that they do not even expect him to be anything else, it looks as if he really covered rather more ground than they could be expected to expect. And it does seem to suggest that there might be more than they fancy in these other mysterious attributes of casting out devils or prophesying doom. Above all, would not such a reader of the New Testament stumble over something that would startle him much more than it startles us? I have here more than once attempted the rather impossible task of reversing time and the historic method, and, in fancy, looking forward to the facts, instead of backward through the memories. So I have imagined the monster that man might have seemed at first to the mere nature around him. We should have a worse shock if we really imagined the nature of Christ named for the first time. What should we feel at the first whisper of a certain suggestion about a certain man? Certainly it is not for us to blame anybody who should find that first wild whisper merely impious and insane. On the contrary, stumbling on that rock of scandal is the first step. Stark incredulity is a far more loyal tribute to that truth than a modernist metaphysic that would make it out merely a matter of degree. It were better to rend our robes with a great cry against blasphemy, like Caiaphas in the judgment, or to lay hold of the man as a maniac, possessed of devils, like the kinsman and the crowd, rather than to stand stupidly debating fine shades of pantheism in the presence of so catastrophic a claim. There is more of the wisdom that is one with surprise in any simple person, full of the sensitiveness of simplicity, who should expect the grass to wither and the birds to drop dead out of the air, when a strolling carpenter's apprentice said calmly, and almost carelessly, like one looking over his shoulder, before Abraham was, I am. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, 
which will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>